This is NBR's Live from the Hive, a compilation of the week's top stories straight out of the beehive. Do you have something to add? Head over to nbr.co.nz and join the discussion. Beehive Banter, back with NBR's political editor Brent Edwards and myself Grant Walker and we've been enlightened enlightened after Labour's Congress last weekend and the reaction since then. So we're either voting for the coalition of chaos or the coalition of cuts. What a choice, Brent. Yeah, no, it's a great choice, actually. I mean, it's so <laughs> typical, isn't it, of political parties to think up these monikers. So, you know, something that'll... I mean, in the coalition of chaos, so, you know, that's the argument if you had a government, Labour... Greens, the party Māori, that would be chaos. And then, of course, Labour's thing, if you get National and Act, they both want to cut taxes. They argue that'll be spending cuts, so it's the coalition of cuts. And well, I thought David Seymour made a brilliant media move, in fact, by saying what Luxon probably should have. Um, yes, he came out and said, yes, we are. Well, we, we're the people who are going to cut things, uh, and, and we're going to cut unnecessary spending. Although, in saying that, they're probably going to cut a lot more. Well, they're going to cut... I mean, it, it all gets down to what people think is unnecessary spending, but it, but the ACT Party's been very upfront about what it would cut. I mean, it would cut a range of government departments and agencies, you know, Ministry for Women's Affairs, Pacific yep. Island, all of those. So um, there'd be arguments. A lot of people would think that that is not unnecessary well, they spending. Well, they should have said the words, but, and proud of it. But cuts and I proud think of it. The problem for National has been that they are really trying to offer people tax cuts in terms of raising the tax income thresholds, but without any impact on spending. And I mean, the Act is saying the same thing. They won't they won't cut frontline spending. They say you know frontline services like teachers, nurses, doctors, education, health. So everyone's sort of going, oh, it's a coalition but, conundrum. Yeah, but it clearly, um, you know, <laughs> Labor will, will play up the fact that, you know, they're trying to play up the idea and the view that if you if you vote for those parties, there will be cuts, real cuts to your services. And I mean, and, and that, that argument will run through from now until um, the election. Or after. Or after. Um, now, let's briefly talk about that Labor Congress. Um, super staying at 65. Um, then after that, of course... You're PM. safe. <laughs> well... You're safer than I am, to be fair. <laughs> uh, and then the PM announcing more money on fog cannons. Um, I thought, really, if that's the best you can do, the day after this Congress, you know, fog cannons, 11 million or whatever it is, is that not a concession that crime is basically completely out of hand and they just can't do anything about it because therefore we're going to have to give you more fog? Well, it's certainly a concession that there's a real problem with retail crime, you know, at dairies and... Um liquor outlets and other small retailers who are clearly being um, hammered at the moment by um, groups of... Um, well, people are closing their businesses down, so we yeah. just, it's too hard. Um, but but equally, uh, you know, this week too, um, the government announced that they finally reached that 1,800 more cops. So there are now... How and, many years after they promised? Well, yes, true, but they've reached it. And the argument again on crime, because obviously both ACT and National are really pushing the law and order issue, as it does get done most elections, and claiming, you know, criticising government, soft on crime approach, that's why there's more crime, although, you know, statistics sort of bounce around a bit. But equally, the government will come back with, well, actually, there are 1,800 more cops on the beat after, under national, they'd been reducing a bit, and it's now got one cop to 480 people. So what, it's taken them six years to get to deliver on their promise? Well, they've delivered... 
more their argument will be delivered way more than because under, nas- under national there was one police officer to 544 people. So they have put more police on the streets um, in terms of dealing with crime. So that, that will be the debate. But yeah, but they're there, but that, that, they haven't been dealing with crime. What, are they just sitting in cafes? Well, look at the crime stats. They're bad. Are the wheels falling off, Labor? you got the crime stats bad. Kerry Allen, this week, read the wrong speech. Jan Tanetti referred to the Privileges Committee over possibly misleading Parliament. Or is all of this just someone else's fault? Well, most of that stuff, I mean, I don't think many people are going to be that way it is in terms of voters that Kerry Allen read a, what, second reading speech when it was the third reading of well, the bill. Well, how did she not even know? Well, it, it, I'll tell you this, it's happened before, Grant, and it will Let happen guess, again. It's happened under national. It, and it will happen again because what happens, what it brings us back to is the way Parliament operates because you get a whole host of... So you're of telling me that, that basically the MPs just get given a speech, they don't even know yeah. what it is, and they just read it yeah. as if they're Muppets. Most or of the puppets. Most of the time, yes. Well, that's the headline, isn't it? Um, speaking of a bad look, alcohol prices are up again. Now, that's a bad look. Another, <laughs> another tough one for you. I'm another sorry about that. Another tough one for me. Showers, shorter showers, colder showers. Now the booze is up. Lemon here. You can't even drown your sorrows. <laughs> <laughs> I can, but for less amount of time and for less effect. Um, another six point six percent tax increase in the middle of a cost of living crisis again, and a treasury warning: the fuel tax hike. Another one is going to be needed next year, on top of the mm. 25 cents that we're going to get in, what, three and a half, four weeks' time. Yeah, and I mean, and they tend to be, go- I mean, they generally tended to go up annually, and I mean, that's been uh, the Prime Minister Chris Hipkins' argument over the, the booze. Basically, it's been going up every year. I'm they sorry. Re- readjust oh, well, it. it goes up every yeah, year, so, I so too bad. I know, but you're right. It's, it's, not, it's not a great look um, in terms of happening in a cost-of-living uh, crisis, and for those people who you know might enjoy the odd beer or the odd glass of wine, or, or even more, Grant, looking at you, then, yeah, it's going to be tough. Well, the good news is, with all those extra police, no one will be able to go into those booze shops and steal stuff, will it? Will they? Well, I guess the argument will be there as to, you know, where, where, where those police are being used and what, and what, what sort Although of Although, let's face it, if you get a bottle of gin at $60, it pretty much will be a steal. Just saying. Right, to other parties. <laughs> Pumjeet Palmer. She's coming back, but for ACT, was that a surprise? Well, actually, I had to look up who she was when I saw that. I mean, she wasn't... She was a national MP. Oh, now come No, on. she was a national MP from 2014 to 2020. But she, I mean, she didn't exactly set the world alight here. She lost her seat in 2020 when there was that kind of Labour wave because she was just too too low on nationals. Just, I mean, what it points to is that obviously ACT has been trying to pick up candidates at Caesars, kind of, you know, giving it more heft, if you like. It's got Andrew got Andrew Hoggart, sorry, the former uh, now now former. Um, President of Federated Farmers, um, her. Um, so yeah, it's it's digging international territory. That's the interesting thing. That the, it's sort of kind of taking people that you know, either were a national MP or you might have considered would have been a national candidate rather than that. Well, how high would she be expecting to be on the list? Well, David Seymour has made it very clear that he expects the Axe board to place her very highly on the list. And in, a, in a winnable, I, I, I would imagine so too. They haven't gone out and found these people and effectively recruited them on the basis that they'll throw them down the list and give them no chance of getting into Parliament. But on the same token... They're expecting to get a better vote in this election than they did the last election. So they're expecting that they'll have an even bigger caucus 
after the October 14 election than they've had in this term. Now, Palmer, Palmer won't win, uh, so she'll have to be on the list if she's going to win, because she's up against Simeon Brown, you know, and he's the guy who created that road sign national misfire. Yeah, I mean, that was that, rather... I mean, <laughs> what was that? Well, it's inexplicable. <laughs> I mean, that, and at least, you know, so this idea that, you know, we don't want bilingual signs because what's happening in Hawke's Bay is signs that, have been, that were destroyed during the cyclone are now being replaced, and they're being replaced by signs in both English and Maori. And that's created... And I've, well, I, well, what's happened is that been at some public meetings and they've had a few people raise concerns about this because there is a small group of people... What about minority, They're all I, in French. I know, I know. Or the if you, Rue. If you go around the world, the number of times you come across bilingual signs and as though you, as though you cannot read them... Um, obviously, Chris Hipkins accused National of um, dog whistling, which um, Christopher Luxon, you know, rejected. But actually, clearly, it is. Oh, I mean, yeah. they, 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 they're pandering to a, a group, and I think it's a minority of people who seem to have this real dislike of Te Rā Māori, and they don't like the fact it's being spoken on television and radio. And now it's you know, and the government departments have got those names, and now our road signs. You know what, we all complained when we sang the national anthem for the very first time it was sung in yeah. Māori and then English, and now we don't even think about yeah. it. No one cares, we just well, sing it, and we as, sing along. And as people have pointed out, I mean, it's, there's a lot of people having great fun on social media about this. I mean, yeah. you, you see a road sign saying Rotorua, well, <laughs> do, do National Party people know where to go? Do they know how to get to that? I mean... <laughs> Well, maybe, maybe. It's a very good point. I mean, but maybe if we're going to have bilingual science, we'll have to have that in English as well. Well, you know? <laughs> I would think so. Um, numerous misfires from the Nats. They just don't. They're just not getting it. There's all these little things every week coming out, yeah, mainly by Luxon misfiring, then spending the next three days trying to explain what he meant. Yeah, misfiring, and, and 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 I think also a few traps being laid for him that he's falling into. Um, you know, the recent one over this issue with the um, prescription charges. Yeah. And, I mean, which... And contraception. Uh, uh, the, yeah, but, pill, but I mean. of course, it applies to all other medicines too, not just contraception. Yeah. But now, because it's known <laughs> that he's a socially conservative Christian, it's playing into this thing and that he personally is opposed to abortion. So it helps play into this thing that he is not, if you like, a feminist. So, or that he's anti-woman, and, and so it's being used and played on um, when really... He's running know. out of time to get his act together, that's what he's doing. In fact, I shouldn't even use the word act in national, maybe I should in the same sentence, but nonetheless, you know what I mean? Yeah, but I mean, on prescription charges, actually, national should have just swallowed it. Yeah, they should have. Finally, and quickly, Willie and John Tamahedi having a bit of a hooey, talking about Maori seats, as in, hey, Labour, don't stand in them, let us have them, <laughs> go for the party vote. So, so Jackson said everything's on the line, and the reality is we have to find ways of working better together, although not contemplating, he said, conceding seats, saying it's one step too far. But then he went on, and here's the bit I like. He said, at this stage, he said, in fact, I quote, I get what John is saying, but it's not a deal we can do at the moment. When will be the moment? Well, I, I mean, look, I'm reading into that at the moment it means in future elections, possibly. But what you might see... what If it looks like Labor might lose, at moment will be yeah, soon. Look, you, you, given the history of the seats, the Maori seats in Labor, you can't imagine seeing Labor abandoning any seat and not standing. What you might see, and you could possibly see it, a nod on a this, ele this election... Well, yeah, where a candidate might push for the party vote more strongly than they push for the electorate vote. For instance, in Wairiki, which is held by the yeah. Party Māori um, co-leader, um, Rui Waititi, it might be that Labour doesn't go so strong in that seat to try and win it back, and 
focus is more on the party vote um, to ensure that party that's Māori not, would... That's not cynicism, is it? That's um, not cynical, is it? Well, you know, we obviously see that with National Enact in, in Epsom. Um, it's, I guess it's the way the system works. Oh, um, speaking of systems working, um, here's something. Are voters actually going to know what we're voting for? And by that, I mean, or do we have to wait until after the election to realise that the people we voted for based on the promises mean nothing because they, that, that, parliament, that party then turn around and say, oh, yeah, we made these promises, but in order to get a government, we had to bend and break all those promises and bring in these new policies that we didn't want to bring in, like on capital gains tax, but they made us do it. Yeah. And so we vote for something that we fundamentally don't get. Well, of course, if you go back to first past the post when you got a majority government elected all the time, we had plenty of, op- of examples of parties being elected under government on a range of promises and breaking them even when they didn't have to kowtow to some other party to get them. So, so and that actually was probably one of the things that kind of fueled the support for MMP. Look, what will happen is that, I mean, voters... I've told will, you what's going to happen. Voters will vote for the party of their choice, but they'll have to be aware of who are the likely coalition or support parties and have an idea of what their policies are, and that will give them a sense of oh, what right. might happen. So what I'm back to the original question is we have to sit there and try and work it out beforehand because yeah. no one's going to tell us. Well... Well, not really. Yeah, they won't tell you exactly because they, until they get the results, they won't know who they right need to talk to. Oh. For instance, National obviously looking at doing a deal with ACT, but it might be that if New Zealand First sneaks in, which I wouldn't rule out, that together National Act don't have quite enough votes and they have to talk to Winston Peters again. So what will that do to... I mean, if it's just National and Act, what you'd expect is that National would sort of possibly not do exactly what they've got in their pots, but it might be actually they'd go a bit further on tax cuts because that would be Act trying to pull them further. So why don't they just turn around and say, look, just vote for us because we'll just do whatever happens and whatever happens happens and blah, blah. Well, all I can advise you is when you go in to vote <laughs> Here we go. on, you know, Saturday October, after you vote, go and buy a lottery ticket as well because, you know, you've got, <laughs> well, e- you've got equal chance. Yeah, that's right. All right. <laughs> Parliament sitting again next week. Short week. King's birthday. Caucus and the House on Tuesday. All right. Now, that is Beehive Matter. So much every week to take in. So much to think about before we vote. Mind you, how many of us already know who we're going to vote for? You know who you're going to vote for? My lips are sealed. Yeah, because he doesn't vote for anybody because he likes to be sitting on the fence as a political editor, don't you? That way. It's You're not really allowed to vote. It's a secret ballot for yeah. a reason. Thank you, Brent. <laughs> Thank you, as usual, for reading, listening or watching. We'll catch you next time. NBR are offering a free trial to newcomers. See what all the fuss is about on our flagship website, nbr.co.nz. In the lead-up to the election, the personality contest between National Leader Christopher Luxon and Prime Minister Chris Hipkins will be accentuated. But will it make the voters' choice any easier? Well, to discuss, let's get to NBR's political editor, Brent Edwards. So you're worried there'll be too much focus on the personality? Why is that? Well, yeah, I mean, a lot of campaigns, that you know, we get so focused on the leaders, and particularly the leaders of the two major parties, because those are the two people who are most likely to, likely to be Prime Minister after the election. And a lot of the focus then is who they are as people and their personality. And, you know, and I mean, the parties play this up. You know, they do go for the photo opportunities. You know, we've had the example of a few months ago of Christopher Luxon at, at the old McDonald's um, place where he worked as a student, sort of 
doing the work then. You know, we've had, you know, a lot of focus on Chris Hipkins, that he loves sausage rolls and he's a boy from the hut. And, you know, and at the annual conference last weekend, shots of him and a Mr Whippy Van handing out ice creams to his delegates. And, you know, it's all meant to make them relatable. You know, the guy next, the bloke next door, you know, you can... and But, you know, but much more important for voters is what would they do as primate? What are the policies that their government they would lead would put in place that would affect people's lives. So it makes for good TV, but you're wanting to see those policy shifts and, and that's what voters should focus on? Yeah, well, that should focus on And I also think, I mean, leadership's important, don't, don't get me wrong. It, it, you know, so the, the people that we're looking to, to lead the country, the person that looks to be Prime Minister, but, but there are other leaders as well. You look at who in the team, you know, who will be senior ministers as well. And we don't have a presidential-style leadership here yeah. in the sense we're not electing a president. But, but leadership is important. But rather than looking at the personality of the leader, I think may, you know, should all more address the issue of character, the character of our political leaders. You know, do they have integrity? Can they be trusted? And, and and will they put in place the sorts of policies that will lead to an improvement in people's lives? What role then does the news media play in this? Well, the news media, I think, does have a, a real role to play because, you know, often the news media likes those personality pieces, you know. And, and the photo shots of, for instance... Chris Hipkins in a Mr Whippy van or Christopher Luxon at McDonald's, you know, they get used a lot. And they're the sorts of shots too on the campaign trail that often are being looked for for both television and for, um, for you know, for print media, online media, photographs of that, of that nature to sort of show the human side of, of the politician. But, I mean, again, I mean, I'm not saying the news media will focus on, but the, the main focus has got to be on... Um, you know, the policies and, and really, you know, what we want in the election campaign is a contest of ideas, not a contest of personalities. And at the same time, don't be so focused on who might be Prime Minister because actually these other parties and their leaders, the smaller parties, ACT, the Green Party, New Zealand First, uh, Te Party Māori, maybe, and the Opportunities Party, they're important too. What role might they play? Because, you know, we know from looking at the polls, we're not going to get a re- repeat of the 2020 election result. Um, either National or Labor will need mates to form a government. So what will that mean? But ultimately, we will see a lot of personality leading up to the campaign. We will see a lot of personality leading up to the campaign, um, ultimately, and in my view, unfortunately. Um, I presume probably that they'll the two main leaders will probably be in the women's magazines in the summer, you know, because you normally get that sort of run and, and the political parties push that too because they want to present their leaders again as being, you know, of the people, just like you and me, the guy next door, that kind of thing, so that they are relatable. A lot of focus too then on how they figure in the most preferred Prime Minister's um, stakes in terms of the opinion polls and neither, you know, Christopher Luxon struggled a bit there, uh, Chris Hipkins was questioned this week on RNZ because his numbers were down and why is he doing so badly? But we don't elect a Prime Minister directly. I mean, that's the point. We elect a Prime Minister by giving votes to the party of our preference and whichever parties or party, major party is able to get enough support from other parties to have enough seats in Parliament to form a government will be the government and therefore that person who leads that party will become Prime Minister. But Voters do not vote directly for them. Brent Evans, thank you. Like what you're hearing? 
Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. Trade Minister Damien O'Connor is in the middle of a whirlwind of trade-related visits. He's not long back from attending the annual APEC Trade Ministers Meeting in Detroit and soon leaves for an OECD Trade Ministers Meeting in Paris and Commonwealth Trade Ministers Meeting in London. He joins me now. Well, let's go to the trip you've just come back from. I don't know if you can recall where you've been <laughs> and where you're going. But So we had the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework deal on regional supply chains. I mean, how important is that? I mean, what will that do for traders here? Uh, look, it's really important. This has been a US initiative, IPF, and uh, it's them reaching back down into the Indo-Pacific region um, after a period, I guess, of absence. And so all of us as countries has welcomed that initiative. It's not a traditional trade agreement, so there's some scepticism from some of the parties. The ASEAN countries are saying, you know, well, what's the goods access that we might get? But actually, over time, the US has done a really good job to kind of push forward um, the pillar approach and and this non formal agreement approach. Yes, we sign up to um, supply chains pillar. Uh, we're looking to decarbonisation, um, labour standards um, and there is, of course, there'll be a trade chapter but it's not in the traditional way. So might be the way of the future, um, building connections, um, reliance on one another, but not necessarily ensuring goods market access, which for the US at the moment is very, very sensitive. Do you see it, though, as it develops, I mean, in sort of the future, that there may be a prospect that it might help at least ease trade access? Absolutely. I mean, we don't have a formal trade agreement with the US, and, you know, we'd like to have one. Uh, in spite of that, we have an amazing commercial relationship with that country. You share the values, um, uh, you know, exciting opportunities in, in IT, and indeed in some areas of, of um, food and beverage, of course. Uh, but um, I think over time it will build towards that, but there's a different process of, of uh, endorsing trade agreements that has to, does require congressional support, that's it's somewhat, co somewhat complex um, and a very challenging uh, political environment in the US. And India's involved too, right? So Absolutely. Does, uh, nice to have India there, um, you know, and, and they, they feel more comfortable given that it's not a formal trade agreement. They tend to take a bilateral approach, as we've seen. Uh, the multilateral one is something that they are, you know, a bit more cautious about. But in in terms of you know progress thus far, they've been active and willing participants because there's an interdependency on on one another here, and of course supply chains. What we learned uh, over COVID was that um, you, you know we should work cooperatively to ensure that we're not cut off medical supplies, vaccines, food, um, you know critical minerals, all of those things um, we rely on as countries, and it's the movement of them through what we call traditional trade avenues uh, that has to be continued. I mean, there's been a lot more talk about um, the New Zealand-India relationship and, and whether um, the commercial relationship can be developed further, um, and particularly criticism from the National Party. What, what do you make of that in a sense of um, trying to develop deeper ties with India on trade? Well, I guess National has to criticise something, and so I guess the fact that we haven't got a formal trade agreement, we're not negotiating one at the moment, the fact that they ran into a brick wall in 2009 um, with India. Look, they're very cautious. Uh, we've had, I think, four ministerial visits in the last, uh, I think, 12 months. So we've got a good relationship with India, um, but they've clearly said, um, you know, we, we don't want to go anywhere that might impact on our dairy industry and the, and the millions and millions of farmers who are involved 
involved in that. Dairy is a big part of our trade profile. They understand that. Um, but we're building, I think, a strong relationship in many areas. And I uh, spoke to a forum last night where, you know, we may not be selling, but we are certainly sharing. Um, and, and we'll build those connections. And over time, I'm sure we will have a trade arrangement uh, with India. In the meantime, we just build on what we have. And presumably you will be having discussions at least on the sidelines of these meetings you're going to in Paris, the OECD trade minister meeting, Commonwealth trade ministers meeting in London. The Indian trade minister presumably will be there for... Uh, yes, I think he will be, but I will be travelling to India um, later on and uh, dates yet to be finalised. Um, look, it's part of an ongoing connection with them. And again, spoke with Priyush Goyal. Uh, he came in by Zoom um, to IPF. But uh, look, there's a very, I think, warm and friendly relationship with my um, ministerial colleagues as well. So uh, great opportunity, obviously a very populous country. I think it's just overtaken uh, China as, as the biggest population in the world. Uh, but, but they're moving forward cautiously, um, quickly, but cautiously in terms of their relationships uh, with, with other countries. There's been this sense that protectionism has been growing around the world over the last few years. From, from the meetings, these international meetings you've been to, What's the sense from other countries now about their perspective on trade and, you know, are they worse in terms of protectionism or, you know, what's... We started to see that creep in even prior to COVID and I think uh, COVID uh, threw a spanner in the works and then um, there was a different view that we depended upon one another, which was trade, or we had to depend upon ourselves, which was the, I guess, the protectionist approach. Uh, we've seen a bit more of that protectionist approach, I guess, in general discussions, um, but we're staunch advocates for a multilateral open trading environment that allows um, you know, smaller countries to compete. Um, it's not just New Zealand, it's developing countries as well. And without a trading environment with rules, um, it's, it's a very, very uh, challenging world uh, for other than the big players. So we will continue to battle away through the WTO primarily to ensure that there's a multilateral rules-based system, um, as I say, to protect us, but also the developing and other small countries around the world. I mean, back to that criticism, I guess, of, of the government's trade policy vis-a-vis -vis India, but in fact, you've what, I think, negotiated or upgraded, what, six or seven agreements. I mean, and this week, obviously, the New Zealand-UK free trade agreement came into effect. I mean, and you've managed to do that despite growing protectionism. What do you put that down to? I guess it's consistency. So we have four new and three upgrades, uh, which is a, a pretty good record to have. And I have to thank my colleagues and thank officials um, that are world class. Um, and I guess that, um, you know, it was pretty a bit of lateral thinking to get CPTPP over the line. Um, RCEP, another big agreement that, that maybe not as ambitious, but just as important. And then, of course, we've got the EU and the UK trade deals. Um, I think we take a consistent approach. Um, we, we, with the last two agreements, we're looking to improve the standards. We have a trade for all strategy that says, you know, we must be inclusive um, with what we're trying to achieve here. And part of the protectionism has been other countries haven't necessarily included all their stakeholders when they go to negotiate agreements. They're looking to us for a bit of advice from time to time as to how they uh, convince all their stakeholders that negotiating a trade agreement will deliver benefits for all their people. Just as we have had to try harder here in New Zealand, they too are, are I guess, learning from our experience. And I think we'll start to see an opening up of, of trade, if not in the immediate future, but over time, again, Again, the interdependence on one another for most of the goods and services that we have across the globe means that trade is essential. 
and putting your other hat on as agriculture minister, you get a bit of stick from farmers over regulations and all of the like, and obviously the ongoing concerns about um, how farm emissions might be priced and what have you. But those open markets presumably are doing farm farmers a lot of good in terms of opening up export markets. Do, do they recognise that? Well, I, they, they do perhaps have prompted. Um, look, it's huge opportunities and we can only feed 40 million people and we've got some amazing trade agreements. Um, uh, our challenge is actually to produce enough to fill all those market opportunities. But we'll, we'll, we'll aim for the higher returning markets, but having flexibility uh, in a trade through our trade recovery strategy is what we've, we are attempting to do by knocking on the doors and, and opening further opportunities. And we'll, we'll move from here, look to the Middle East perhaps, and then to Latin America. So uh, we'll continue to work hard for them. But one of the things that I took from the Washington visit was aim for climate, again an initiative from the US. Uh, many other countries, in fact the biggest number of ag ministers in the US for many, many years, um, there's a focus on climate change, on emissions reduction, on food security. So trying to keep food uh, being produced um, by all of us, across, but also sharing the technology to try and reduce the emissions over time because climate change is affecting uh, the viability and the consistency of, of food production systems uh, across the globe. And so you're getting the message that if New Zealand doesn't have a good story to tell on that, then trade access could start to close up? Uh, yeah, indeed it will. And I think that given that we're, we're targeting the premium markets, we need higher returns for our, um, you know, they're not just commodities. These are high value commodities. It's not just milk powder. It's milk powder produced for markets and, and ingredients. And if we're to expect higher returns for that, we're going to have to have higher standards. Part of that is a commitment to reduce emissions from New Zealand, but also from the companies, which is why Fonterra are talking to their farmers saying we'll have to investigate scope three emissions, we need to look into your farm and, and see what the emissions are from your production system on farm so that we can reassure our customers. Damien O'Connor, thank you for your time. Kia thank you. NBR columnist Bridget Morton worries that with migration numbers picking up again, the country faces the risk of another merry-go-round of politicising immigration. She joins me now. So the numbers have jumped right back up. Why are you worried? Well, I think, you know, we were at a point, you know, about six years ago in our political cycle where there was a lot of discussion about migration. There was a lot of blame put on people coming into the country for driving up the cost of housing, for putting, you know, a lot of pressure on our infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of promises were made by Labor that they were going to fix that situation and that would actually have a migration system that was fit for purpose, that actually, you know, would enhance us as a nation rather than putting pressure on us as a nation. But if you look at what's happened over the last six years, it's just been need jerk response after knee jerk response and we're back where we started and we're no better off. Would it be better if we had a population policy and a, and a debate around population rather than specifically migration? And you know, where you talk about well population's growing and clearly as it grows, you need more infrastructure, you need more schools, you need more hospital beds and the like. Yeah, I think there's definitely a view of whether or not we want a population policy that tells us exactly how fast we want to grow, which gives us a view of what kind of infrastructure, what kind of resources we need to support that growth. But I do think you've got to be careful, though, because you can't have sort of one without the other. You can't kind of just put, a, say, a cap on how many people can come in without actually deciding what the best use of people coming in is for us as a nation. But, I mean, because... 
wasn't one of the problems, if you like, or a failure almost of the previous National League government that while it, as I remember John Key standing in Westpac Stadium saying that that stadium was going to Australia every year and that he would stop it, which happened, but as a result, though, we, we couldn't keep up in terms of infrastructure or housing. Yeah, absolutely. I do think that there was an issue under the previous government to say, yes, we want you know to keep our most talented here, which is what they were saying, but not actually planning for that growth. And I think the problem is, is that we've actually just ended up back in that cycle again, where we're now in a point of desperation for a lot of our skilled migrants and trying to stop our most talented people going overseas, particularly to Australia or the UK, when we actually need them to stay here and we've got nothing from the government, despite all these promises, that it actually is going to change that. I mean, it was meant to be the great immigration reset. What has actually happened? I mean, in your column, actually, you do make that reference to Australia, the concern that we're going to lose a lot of people there. But how do we stop that? I mean, because you also, I note, talk about fair pay agreements, adding cost, et cetera. But if you look at Australia, they've got national awards, they've got the Fair Pay Commission, I mean, they have actually got a fairly more, in some ways, more rigid employment structure than we do, don't we? Yeah, I definitely do think they have more rigid employment structure, but they've also got a much more thriving economy. So I think they can kind of you know, allow for that a little bit more. What the factors you've got to look at is in terms of whether or not somebody is going to stay here or go and start a business over there is about what those extra context is. So you can't, once again, look at migration just in a bubble of what is happening with migration. It is actually about what is happening with our economy and what's happening with the future of our economy. And But the worry about people going overseas, I mean, I, I think, again, I think you reference in your column to 25-year-olds and what have you, the, the farewell parties and the farewell drinks, but... I mean, you know, it's been a rite of passage, and in many cases those people go away, get good experience overseas, but then come back. I mean, I mean, that's good for the economy, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it is great for the economy, but if they're going to come back, and if we, I think, continue on the pathway that we are of really high house prices, so for them to come back, it's not possible for them to afford a house here or raise their kids because of the high cost of living relative to overseas, it means that we're not going to be able to get them back when they have sort of, you know, picked up the skills across the ditch that we want them to. They're going to stay there. And obviously that new citizenship part- partnership, sorry, citizenship pathway for New Zealanders in Australia means that that will actually hold them there possibly even longer than we hoped. But the numbers show, though, I mean, aside from that, that New Zealand still seems to remain, now that we're out of the COVID restrictions, an attractive destination for other people to come and live and work. Yes, absolutely. But this goes back to, are we attracting the right people here that are going to invest in what we need to invest in and provide those skill shortages? I don't think we can pretend that we can address all of our skill shortages as a really small population. We rely on being a part of a global um, world. So I think we want to actually inc- you know, encourage people to come here and make it attractive but it's really difficult to just say it should be anyone that we need just because we suddenly need nurses because we're going into winter, which is what the government has done, as opposed to planning three, six months ago and giving those nurses actually come here and we'll give you a pathway to residency. The problems we face, though, aren't too much different to a lot of other countries, are they, in, in, in terms of those specific skills that are lacking? 
Yeah, absolutely, which is why we've got to make it attractive. We've got to make it really clear that we are that we will value them when they're here. And you saw, you know, some of that damage, I think, some during the COVID time of doctors, for instance. We lost a number of doctors who couldn't be offered residency and a number of nurses. And I think, you know, I saw over the weekend that teachers are now saying that they are at the point of burnout and not even leaving the sector, but also leaving the country as well for other opportunities. Bridget Morton, thank you for your time. And that's been this week's Live from the Hive. Thanks for listening.